I am so sorry. I forgot that uh, Tamaki is going to pray for us um, in her native language, which is Japanese. Um, so this is something that Eric decided to do. Um, it's really neat just to have somebody in their own native tongue pray to Jesus and pray to God. Uh, we're not going to interpret it, but if you'd like to know what she is saying, you can come up afterwards and, and ask her. She'd be happy to share her translation. So. I'm hoping you forget. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Then you must must worry and teach you. Hokoni, Imats Marel Koto, Hontoni, Hokori, no Moshi, Ureshko Moimas, Anata no Megumiga, Matastach no Kokoroni, Chokset Sodokioni, Matastach no Kokoro, Yawaraka, Kujunani, Stekudasai. ロンの説教が今日みんなの心を開いて私たちが一つの家族のようになれるように導いてくださいイエス様が私たちのことをどれだけ愛してくれたのかどれだけの犠牲を払ってくれたのかを私たちの心に直接語りかけてください今日の説
uh, a contemporary scholar of Shakespeare knows Shakespeare. Right? They know an awful lot about Shakespeare. But if we're talking about Shakespeare's neighbor in the 1600s, and we say Shakespeare's neighbor knew him, you know, we mean something entirely different. Even if that neighbor knows a lot about him, you know, what's important when we say uh, he knew Shakespeare is that he knew him by acquaintance. And I wouldn't say that when I went to college, I knew God very well by acquaintance. So it was in digging into the Gospel of John, as I started to read that in college, that I was drawn into an acquaintance with God, like I was meeting him really for the first time. And there's something special about this Gospel, I think because of who it was written by. It was written by the Apostle John. And he was especially close to Jesus. Um, he knew Jesus closely by acquaintance, and he was passionate about transmitting that closeness to Christ to whoever was open to hear it. He referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which is kind of a funny way to refer to yourself. <laughs> Um, but but it was true, right? He he records himself at one point at supper, um, resting his head back on Jesus's chest. Right? He was he was close with Jesus. He knew that he was loved by Jesus, and he wants us to know that we're loved by Jesus as well. And that may be why you know in a lot of the stories that he gives in this gospel, he gives us some you know seemingly unimportant details. Like in chapter six, he doesn't just feed the multitudes with loaves of bread. He feeds them with barley loaves. And in chapter 12, when the jar of perfume is broken over his feet, it fills the house with fragrance. You know, these stories are written uh, by someone who was actually there. And we get the sense that, uh, that John was there and that he wants us to feel like we were there. He wants to give us a taste of what it was like to be in Jesus' presence. And the thing is, John wanted us to know that when we realize that we're loved by Christ the way that he realized it. We can say just as much that we're loved by God. In verse 519, that's the last verse that we're going through today, he says, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So as we read about what Jesus did at the pool of Bethesda, keep this in mind that what Jesus says and what he does and how he responds is what God says and does and how he responds. And with that, I will hand things over to my wife to read the passage because she has a lovely voice. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which is Aramaic and it's called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of discipled, discipled people used to, used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, who had been, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Hmm? Yeah, Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because the Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work. To this very day, and I, too, am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Okay, so we come to this story uh, after John records Jesus as already having been in Jerusalem once. He came for the Passover feast. Then he left Jerusalem, went back to his home region of Galilee. Um, he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. He heals the official son. Uh, and he comes back to Jerusalem. Verse 1 says Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. He comes back to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, which Don, John doesn't tell us which one it is, but... It's one of the three uh, pilgrimage feasts that we see in Deuteronomy 16. So these were, these were the festivals that, um, that God required all of the Jewish people to come to Jerusalem uh, to the temple for worship. Um, and so Jesus is living out his obligation as a Jewish man uh, to come to Jerusalem for this festival. So Jesus is subjecting himself to the law, ultimately so that we can be freed from the law, but it's not like he's following this law as if he's a robot, you know, programmed to adhere strictly to all the rules, right? He loves that three times a year God's people converge on Jerusalem to worship him. And he loves that he has a chance to be in Jerusalem at the temple communing with his father. That's why the last time he was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, he cleared the temple of money changers because he's passionate about God's people being an authentic relationship with him. In verse 2 it says, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So recent archaeology tells us that there actually was a pool, um, and that the pool that John is describing here was probably actually two separate pools. And so these pools, you know, they, they had on each side this 
porch or patio that was had a roof supported by columns. Those are the colonnades. So it was you know four, one for each side, and then there was one in the middle dividing the two pools. That's why there are five. Um, and and they're they're near the sheep gate. The sheep gate was one of the gates into the temple complex. So it's two or three hundred yards away from the temple, which means that it was just bustling with people going about uh, temple business. It would be bustling any time of the year. Uh, this would be a pretty crowded place in Jerusalem, but especially right now when there's uh, one of these pilgrimage feasts. It's just thronged with people and people and animals, right? Animals that are being you know, bought and, and herded into the temple and, and, and prepared for sacrifice. That may be why it's called the Sheep Gate, but we don't know that for sure. So the people that are surrounding this pool are you know, really exhibiting the pinnacle of God's community. They're coming together for the single-minded purpose of worshiping God. But the community at the pool is not engaged in temple worship. It's the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And what the earliest church tradition tells us about this scenario is that Occasionally, an angel of God would, would stir the waters, and whoever was the first person into the water would be healed. So that explains the demographic at the pool. It's a group of people who have the kinds of maladies right, that are just beyond the human ability to, to do anything about. Right? There's no doubt that these people are sick in a way that they can't be cured without some kind of miracle. And the thing is, even though they're surrounded by this paragon of godly community, there is no community at the pool. Because the people are focused on their maladies and their eyes are on the water. So they're not necessarily paying attention to one another, even though they can hear in the background the, the bustling business of, uh, of temple worship. Instead, this is a gathering of, in, of individuals uh, just with crippling needs. We can go on to verse 5. Uh, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So Jesus learns that there's a man who's been paralyzed for a very long time. He stops what he's doing. He approaches him and he asks if he wants to get well. Now a lot has been made of this question, do you want to get well? Um, if you've been around in the, in the church culture long enough, you might have heard this posed as like an accusation. Like, do you really want to get well? You know, like you've been sick for 38 years and it sounds like maybe you're making some excuses about it. Like Jesus is questioning the man's desire. Like he, he doesn't want to be healed or he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want enough to be healed. But to me, that's a really strange way to read this passage. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that's not what's going on. Right? For one thing, the man hasn't said anything yet. And for another thing, he has no idea who Jesus is. Right? News might have spread to him that there was this holy man, Jesus, who came for, for Passover a few months ago, uh, who healed people. But it's not like there are newspapers floating around with Jesus' picture on them. So as far as he knows, this is a complete stranger approaching him out of the blue with no particular interest in his situation and no particular power to do anything about it. 
So instead, I think what's going on is uh, Jesus is just approaching him in a really socially gentle way. You know, he's saying, are you, a, you know, are you one of these people who's waiting for the water to be stirred so you can be healed? You know, basically like, hi, what's going on with you? So, I, you know, I don't think that's a loaded question. But I do think it tells us something about God. Because he could have walked up to this man and just, blam, healed him. You know, we know from some of the other stories of Jesus' healings that he is interested in people being healed. And he could have just imposed his will on the man. He could have moved him into healing, into health, the same way you would move a chess piece. But instead, he's relational about it. And so we can take this away, that when Jesus offers healing, he is also offering relationship. And what, what he's really ultimately interested in is our relationship with God. We'll see that more as we go through the story. But as we look at this man's response, to me it just seems heavy. Jesus asks him if he wants to be well, and he says, basically, yes. But I have no one, so I can't. And as I prepared this sermon and read this man's response over and over again, I actually I started to tear up because it hit me just the desperateness of his situation. He's been paralyzed for 38 years, separated from the healthy community. Whatever opportunity he had to be engaged with that community, he gave up to be at this pool because as far as he knows, this is his one shot at being healed, and he can't do it. Every time the water is stirred, he sees another opportunity for getting well passed by him. And it's because he has no one. And Jesus is not okay with that. Jesus being God in the flesh is not okay with that situation. He was of one mind with our creator God. And he saw the people around him with the same eyes that God sees them. John tells us he saw this man. And what he saw was a person who was alone and handicapped for 38 years, wanting to be healed. So Jesus steps into his life. We've heard a lot of stories so far of people approaching Jesus and asking to be healed. But here we find the kind of situation where Jesus takes the initiative. And I think in expressing his aloneness, this man really speaks for all of us. At one time or another, it becomes clear to us that the people we're surrounded with, despite their best intentions, are unable to satisfy our deepest needs. Because when it comes to our needs, only God is capable of satisfying them. While my wife was up here, you might have noticed um, that we're expecting a new addition to the family, which, which we're amped about. Um, but early on in her pregnancy, it wasn't so exciting because she was just horribly sick. She had morning sickness that was more like all day and all night sickness. And my desire was to be greeted when I got home after a stressful day by you know, a loving wife. 
And God did bless me with an amazing, loving wife, but in that time of our lives, she just wasn't able to, right? I wanted to be cared for, but instead, it really had to be the other way around. And I was stretched so so thin that um, that it felt like I had no one. And in that situation, God took the initiative with me. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't ask for help uh, while we were going through that going through that tough time. Um, but people knew about it somehow, and I think it might be because I was whining. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, God extended so many uh, acts of grace to us during that phase. And, and one of the things he did was uh, Andrea, just out of the blue, out of nowhere, offered to create a sign-up sheet to bring us meals, which may not seem like a big deal, uh, but it was to us right then. And people signed up, and people brought us food. And it told me that not just people in this church like us, which may or may not be true, (laughs) but it told me that God cares about us. And God stepped into our lives, just like he stepped into this disabled man's life. In verse 8, he said, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. So we see here that the miracle happens when this man's will and the power of God cooperate. You know, God doesn't leave the man's will. He doesn't leave his desire out of the equation altogether. But it's clear that it's God's power that accomplishes this. And Jesus tells him to pick up his mat. You know, this was the mat where he had been confined. This is the few square feet of space that had kept him captive for years. And Jesus tells him to just pick it up and walk away with it. I used to think that this mat was like a light sleeping bag that he could just roll up and, and tuck under his arm. But I found out that the Greek word is actually more like pallet or camp bed. So it probably has some kind of rigid structure to it, like a wooden frame. And when he picks it up and walks, you know, he's either got it with two hands and he's kind of shuffling awkwardly away or he's got it over his head. Like whatever it is, it's a pretty theatrical healing. That the man who is confined... To this, to this pallet, right? The people used to see this guy and think that he was like an accessory to the pallet, that it owned him rather than him owning it. And Jesus tells him to just pick it up and, and leave with it. So it probably caught people's attention at the pool, which is why Jesus has to slip away. But it caught some other people's attention too. As we read on in verse 10, The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who was this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So the Orthodox Jewish leaders were watching this. And they had a really complex set of rules around Sabbath law. There's a verse in Jeremiah that says, uh, don't carry a burden on the Sabbath. And so after all their debate and uh, constructing a practical way to apply this, they decided that it wasn't okay to wear a brooch on, on your chest. 
And it wasn't okay to carry a needle in your pocket on the Sabbath because those were burdens. So here comes a guy with a pallet on his head, probably bumping into people 200 yards away from the temple, probably pretty elated. And the Pharisees somehow don't notice the miracle. Instead, what they notice is the infraction of the law. Now, the law at this time actually said, if you carry a burden on the Sabbath, you are subject to death by stoning. So it's not just that they stopped him and said, oh, hey, by the way, this is against the law. They were looking for rocks big enough to kill him. And so the man rightly says, hang on. The man who healed me told me to do this. The responsibility and the authority for what happened belonged to Jesus, which is true. It gets him off the hook. And as we'll find out later, it's going to energize the Jewish leaders in their plans to kill Jesus. We'll come back to that thought, but before then we'll go to verse 14 where it says, Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So the man is at the temple. Right? This is a joyous occasion. He's been 200 yards away from the temple and, and, and blocked by getting there by his own disability for decades. And now he's there and he's able to engage in real worship of God. So when Jesus says, see, you are well again. I think there's joy in his tone. It's a happy moment. But somehow, it seems like he drops the hammer on the man immediately afterwards. He says, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Which, which struck me at first as, you know, really killing the moment. But, but here's what I think is going on here. At this time, uh, people associated their illnesses with their sin. And so this man experienced his illness being cured. And he thinks, well, maybe the consequences of my sin are erased too. And Jesus doesn't want him to be misled. He wants this man to know, look, what's really important is not that you're temporarily physically healed. What's really important is your relationship with God, and your sin still has consequences for that relationship. So it still feels like he's kind of dropping the hammer on him. But, but look, this is an impossible command. We, we sense that it's an impossible command. And the last thing that this guy heard from Jesus was an impossible command. You know, we can think, was it easier for this man to get up and walk when Jesus told him to get up and walk, or is it easier for him to stop sinning when Jesus tells him to stop sinning? It's an impossible command, but it's one that Jesus makes possible. We, just like this man, are not able to stop sinning. It's totally beyond our power and it's beyond the power of the people around us to do anything about. And God is not okay with that situation. And that's why he sent Jesus. You know, I mentioned that there are animals being brought into the temple uh, for sacrifice. This is how 
God was symbolizing his means of tearing down the burden uh, or tearing down the, uh, the wall really between him and his people is these animals dying. Right? It, it was not, this isn't a pretty sight. This isn't a zoo. Right? Animals are going into the temple alive and they're leaving dead. And that's because God needed to represent the severity of people's sin. Jesus was in the midst of these animals when he approached the man at the pool. And he knew that when he offered this man healing, that he was going to become like one of those animals, that he was going to be the real sacrifice that brings us into relationship with God. He knew that when he died, the veil at the temple was just going to be blown wide open. That it's Jesus' sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be in relationship with God. It's Jesus who makes it, uh, who makes it possible for God to make good on his promise in Ezekiel 36.26, which says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so we can walk out of sin the same way this man walked out of the pool of Bethesda when God replaces our stony heart with a soft, fleshy one. He does that when our desire and his power cooperate. That's when real miracles happen. That's how you can identify miracles. That's why when... I get to experience this community. I see just a parade of miracles. I see people stepping into the freedom that Jesus invites them into, carrying pallets over their head. I've experienced this you know, myself in my marriage. I, the last time I was up here, I talked about that, how my wife and I really loved each other uh, when we were dating and when we first got married and we wanted to be married and have a godly marriage, but we just couldn't pull it off. We were really broken. We were... We were really hard-hearted and arguing in, in pretty horrible ways. But we both wanted a good marriage, and we both wanted to honor God with our marriage, and it was beyond our power to do anything about. But God did something about it. He made it possible. He surrounded us with people who loved us. He reminded us that he takes care of our needs, and he softened our hearts. Verses 16 through 19 say, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So in this story and in John's Gospel, we have a picture of what God is like expressed in Jesus' words and in his actions. This expresses what God was like and what God is always like. It expresses what Jesus did and expresses what Jesus always does. So when I, uh, when I said I teared up 
reading about the paralyzed man's condition, uh, you know, it occurred to me that that God was also tearing up about that man's condition. And I know that's extrapolating from the story a bit. But look, Jesus saw this man. He saw that he was desperately isolated. And he stepped into his life knowing that it was going to cost him his own. And if that's not an emotional response, I don't know what is. So knowing that, I would I would ask you, you know, knowing that Jesus communicates with this story, uh, what John communicates with the story, what Jesus did and what, the, you know, the kinds of things that he's always doing. If Jesus is approaching you in a socially gentle way and asking if you want to be well, I would ask you to just reflect on those areas where you feel desperately isolated and when you're entirely unable to help yourself on your own power. Those places where you simply can't stop sinning despite your best efforts. So would you consider that and take a, take a mental note or, or a paper note if you're, if you're uh, the note-taking type? And then in this, uh, in this week to come, you know, I would, I would encourage you to respond to Jesus just like the man at the pool did. Tell him what your desire is and tell him about the impossibilities And when you respond to Jesus, all you have to do is wait for him to respond to you. And when he tells you what to do, do it. Knowing that he's not going to tell you to do something that's beyond his power to make happen. So with that, we have a few minutes uh, for comments. If anybody has questions or comments... I think I skipped page three of my outline so I could go back to that. But uh, I, think, I think we'll leave it there for now. Um, any, any pushbacks or, or thoughts on the story of Jesus' healing? Yeah, right. He was a changed man. He was liberated in a way that they had never experienced him before. Yeah. I think, 
I mean, I think it may have been part of the experience that, you know, God speaks to the soul, not just with the words, but that he would know what he was talking about. Mm. Yeah, that could be. We don't know a lot about what's going on with this man internally, um, but clearly Jesus knows him. My, my thought was, for 38 years, he hasn't had to labor at all. <laughs> He's excited about picking up that mat, I'm sure. You know, it's like, man, it's my first opportunity to do this. Yeah, right. right? That's exciting. So. Yeah, and he goes straight to the temple. He goes straight into worshiping God. But it's a new thing for him. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking that uh, it's crazy to think that uh, if this did not happen on the Sabbath, none of it would have even escalated to where it did. You know, everything would have been fine and okay, and everybody would have just gone on with their lives. But since it happened on this certain day, Yeah, that's really true. You know, in chapter 2, John says, he did a lot of miraculous things in Jerusalem that many people saw, and that's it. That's all he says about it. Right? But this one sticks in his memory. Right? Life and death is on the line with this one. Yeah, well, he certainly saw him with God's eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I'm wondering about um, this time of year, I've actually thought recently, I'm just talking to myself about that God, is it this time of the year and like the symbolism of him turning up and Jesus carrying the cross? And I don't know what's up with that, but I see a pattern there. Yeah, right. Yeah, he had a lot of freedom in carrying that pallet over his head, but uh, but it's cool to connect that image with uh, Jesus shouldering the burden of the cross. Well, we are out of time, but there are three ways to respond tonight. The first is through giving. If you are not a member of the village. There's no expectation that you'd give. The second is through communion. Jesus said that this bread represents his body broken for us, that we take, eat in remembrance of him. And that the wine is the cup of the new covenant, his blood poured out for us. And so if you belong to Jesus, we invite you to uh, come up front and take communion. Uh, there's also 
Speaking of communion bread, uh, gluten-free folks, we've got corn tortillas. That's the yellow, the yellow stuff, I think. Uh, the third way is through the healing chair. In the back, there's a, a, a white painted chair that says the healing chair. It used to be the sinner's chair. Uh, and that is the place where you can go and sit down if you're struggling with uh, feeling helpless to heal yourself. Uh, and if you need prayer, someone will notice you there and pray for you. Let's worship together. <clears throat>